Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Greetings, listeners, dear listeners. Uh, this is The Remnant, and no, despite the similarity of our vocal patterns, this is not Jonah Goldberg, who could not be with you today. This is his humble replacement, Chris Dyerwalt, uh, though you are still dear to me. Um, there is a lot of discussion today about why something is smart politically or dumb politically, uh, never mind whether something is right or wrong, that's for fogies, but whether something is smart politically or dumb politically, the tragedy, of course, is, is that so many of the people talking about what is good politics or bad politics not only don't know anything about politics, they don't even know what actually happened. Someone who does know actually what happened is Darren Shaw. Darren Shaw knows what actually happened because he is, and Darren, I want you to correct me whenever I err. But he is a political science government professor. Which way do you which way do you roll? Government professor at a political scientist by training. A political scientist by training who is a government professor at the University of Texas at Austin. He is a fancy person, even though he's just a regular boy from Orange County. Um, he uh, is one of my favorite uh, and most uh, insightful analysts because he can translate from data nerd world into normal mammal world. Uh, he is, he, I'll put it this way. He is a jock who learned to be a nerd. And this is very helpful for our purposes because what Professor Shaw, who served the Bush 2000 and 2004 campaigns, is that right? Doing uh, public opinion research? Yep, that's right. Uh, and was my colleague on the Fox News decision desk from 2010 to 2020. Where we were, we were the biggest bad. We were bad, and we were nationwide, baby. Uh, and uh, and you were Team Drysdale or Team Kofax? We were Team Drysdale. So on the Fox News decision desk under Nerd Number One, Arn and Michigan, the team was broken into two ha- teams broken into two halves. Uh, and uh, uh, Darren was the captain of of one of the teams, and uh, quite uh, quite a guy, quite a good person, and a good friend of mine. So welcome, Darren Shaw. Great to be here, Chris. Good to see you. Okay. One of the things that I want you to help people clarify in their thinking about what works politically is, let's start with a, 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 let me build a straw man for you to light a fire and burn. Big turnout elections are good for Democrats and bad for Republicans. Right. This is, I don't know, maybe, uh, if not myth number one, certainly one of the top five myths in contemporary American politics. And 
it, it makes sense theoretically. You know, we could we can kind of deconstruct this uh, over the course of our time here, but but the logic of it is pretty simple. That the correlates of turnout, the things that we think drive turnout, also tend to correlate with you know Republican identification. So older people tend to turn out at higher rates, and they're disproportionately Republican. Um, white as opposed to uh, Asian American or Latino tend to turn out at higher rates, and they're a little more Republican than not. Um, higher education—it's until recently, you know—was highly correlated. So the, the, the idea was is that um, you know when uh, when turnout was was uh, low. These Republican-leaning uh, people could be counted on to show up and vote, and would you know lead the Republicans to victory. But when turnout rises, all of these, as we call them, peripheral voters, would show up, and these peripheral voters are really kind of latent Democrats. And if only they could get to the polls, they will lead the Democrats to victory. And this is something and, that, and, and to just just so that people can think about this in context, the argument that Republicans were making, specifically Donald Trump in 2020, about mail-in balloting was there was a lot of talk about fraud, but it was rooted in a longstanding belief among Republicans. And this goes back decade upon decade upon decade, that the easier it is for people to vote, the more likely Democrats will be to win. If there's big turnout and it's the in the the old days, it used to be Republicans would they were going to pray for rain in Philadelphia. Uh, that if if there was bad weather, uh, if there was bad weather in Democratic centers, that their voters wouldn't go out, but that the Republican little old Republican ladies with rain bonnets on would go down to the polling station. And this myth, in the name of your book is the turnout myth. Uh, this myth undergirded the approach that Republicans took in 2020 in terms of why they were working so hard to discourage uh, mail-in and early voting during the quarantine. Yeah, I, I think, you know, despite the evidence that a lot of people have privy to, it's not, you know, it's not difficult to find evidence, uh, you know, taking a look at whether or not Republicans or Democrats tend to disproportionately win in high turnout elections. I mean, it's not, you know, we didn't have to dig very hard um, to find that evidence. But despite that, it's it's a storyline that, as you mentioned, Chris, has been around for decades. Um, you know, one of the things I read in graduate school, there was a great article by James DiNardo, who's a professor at UCLA. And it was uh, called, um, you know, should Republicans pray for rain? Um, and it was, and then <laughs> subtitle, subtitle was the jokes on the Democrats. Uh, and and this was, I, I read this, this always stayed with me to kind of undergirds a lot of the things that you and I are talking about right now. But Donardo said, you know, there's, there's really not much evidence for this. It's a conventional wisdom. It sort of makes sense at a, at a, at a very sort of facile level, but there's no real evidence for it. And then that's kind of the point of departure, you know, that, that what I've been doing a lot of work with, and I've shared with you and others is that, um, you know, 25, 30 years after DiNardo's article came out, there's still no evidence that Democrats actually do disproportionately well in high turnout elections. Now, by the way, I should point out, it's not that they do poorly. It's not, there's a negative, there's just no systematic relationship between turnout levels and partisan vote choice. Uh, well, but so, wait a minute. If if we take a poll of all adults, and let me play devil's advocate. If we take a poll of all adults, uh, typically, like when you do your poll, you poll, you do the Fox News poll uh, with your uh, great counterpart, Chris Anderson. Uh, but you also poll for the Texas Tribune. You've been in and around polling all this time. If I take a survey of the entire adult population, it's going to be more Democratic than a pool of likely voters, right? That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. 
So wouldn't it stand to reason that if you expand out the universe of voters, that it would be more democratic? Yeah, that's that's exactly the logic that that sort of undergirds a conventional wisdom. But let me give away the storyline because we don't really do murder mysteries in political science. <laughs> oh, fine. I'm trying to have a little fun here. And we can, okay, Professor. All right. Well, that's it. It gives you additional straw men to poke holes at. Um, the, the bottom line is that the defining characteristic of these peripheral voters, these people who look like Democrats, isn't that they're latent Democrats. It's that they're just not that interested, not that engaged, not that involved with politics. Um, so what happens is when they do show up, they're disproportionately motivated by whatever the short-term political force is that animates everybody else, right? Um, so, you know, I, the, the analogy I always use is, uh, you know, they're not really football fans, but sometimes they'll show up for the Super Bowl, you know, and, okay. and with presidential election is often the Super Bowl, right? Um, and who are they rooting for in the Super Bowl? Well, you know, well, they kind of look like they should be Cowboys fans. They look like they, but no, actually, they're going to root for whoever is, is kind of the flavor of the moment. Um, and so if the prevailing political wind favors Democrats, then yes, high turnout will favor Democrats. If the prevailing political wind, however, favors Republicans, They'll favor Republicans. And that that's the rub. And, and that's something that's kind of hard to get people to, you know, kind of get their heads around. How many, how many voters is this? Are we talking? So, so um, Ben Sass has talked about this. Other people have talked about this, that we, it's really a double axis. We have an axis that goes left to right, Democrat to Republican, but then we have an intensity axis that goes up and down. Where are and, and I guess what you're saying is that there isn't, if, if you're disengaged by nature, you're not ideological. If you were ideological, you'd be engaged. Is that it? Yes, that's exactly it. Right. And I think, you know, the thinking is that, uh, you know, if you and I are political professionals, we're thinking, I'm like, man, we need to, you know, if we go micro targets and, and we take a look at all the, you know, all the available information, we can find people who sort of look like our supporters. And, and that's true. And that's what, you know, that's something that people have done successfully. That's, you know, Parscale's, Brad Parscale was, uh, you know, kind of uh, properly feted for this as, as Trump's um, data guru that he found a lot of these voters, got them registered and got them to the polls. That, that's Wait a actually- minute. Wait, hold on. That was you guys in 2000 and 2004, though, right? The yes. miracle, the, the Rovian miracle of 2004 was having better data sets. Tell me where I'm wrong having better data sets and finding voters that had been overlooked because they were affinity voters or potential Republican voters that were not in Republican-dominated places. So looking for the roses between the thorns, right? Right. That's, that's exactly right. But what we were able to do in 2000, 2004 was, you know, the, the analogy be it's the low-hanging fruit. Um, so these are people who not, not only look like Republicans, but, but are surprisingly engaged politically. They just, they were mostly in, I, I guess the analogy we'd use is, uh, from the other side would be, uh, you know, Austin, where I'm from, it's considered the, uh, the blueberry in the tomato soup, mm-hmm. you know, so Texas writ large is the tomato soup. Austin is the blueberry. And the, the concern always on the part of, uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans is that, you know, there's all these people out there surrounded by out partisans, you know, by people from the other side, and they're not getting a message. They're not getting touched. They're not getting the, uh, the reinforcement and the, uh, the kind of love that they need to show up and be reliable voters on election day. And so micro-targeting was about was mostly about identifying those voters and kind of throwing them a lifeline, making sure that they did get some love. But also, you know, in the places like we were 
talking, we've talked many times, Chris, about, about uh, Ohio and Hamilton County uh, and, and these sort of enclaves where there's lots of Republican uh, supporters, but they hadn't necessarily, necessarily been identified by Republicans. They hadn't been, uh, you know, those areas hadn't been farmed or tilled in a way that they were yielding maximum fruit. Um, and that was a big part of 2000 and 2004 was, you know, making sure that every Republican, even in hostile areas, got a lifeline, but then going into these very, very promising Republican areas and make sure you were maxing out. But one thing that was sort of interesting about that is that we didn't spend a lot of time trying to convert really low engagement, low interest voters, um, even if they sort of looked Republican. You know, I, I guess the, the the way you think about it for those anybody who's sort of familiar with a with a voter file, I'm sure there's at least 25 of them out there. Uh, <laughs> Pretty sexy stuff. <laughs> yeah, but in a voter file, every individual is given what's called a voting propensity score, zero to ten. How likely are they to vote? And so you'll hear people all the time on podcasts like these talking about, you know, your high propensity and your low. Well, what we spend a lot of time is what we call mid propensity voters. People are scored five, six, sevens. Um, so they're, 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 they, there's a good chance they could vote, but only if they get a touch, right? And that was what micro target was a lot of that kind of stuff. But we're, what we're talking about here, Chris, in this bigger conversation about turnout is zeros, ones, and twos, right? Okay. People really low propensity. And so what I'm telling you right now, I'm not making an argument that, uh, you know, people who are fives or sixes, you know, living in, uh, you know, probably show up for a presidential, you know, may need a little bit of outreach, but are probably going to vote and, uh, you know, re really kind of look like Democrats. They probably are Democrats and, and a message can move them. But when we're talking below that people who haven't voted in two or three elections, people who have no established vote history. Those are the people who would float turnout really high. In American elections. And what I'm telling you is that they're so disengaged and uninvolved and kind of disinterested politically that it's it's impossible to predict with any kind of precision how they're going to vote if they do show up. And frankly, we haven't seen many elections where any of them do show up. Well, we had a, a we, we certainly had a, a bushel basket of voters in 2020. That was the largest turnout I think uh, since, as a percentage of the population, since we got to in the post civil rights era, right? We're look. We had yeah. sixty. What was the what was the final percentage? I think we ended up being close to sixty six. And my benchmark has always been Nixon Kennedy. And I, I I think if I'm reading kind of Michael McDonald's numbers and some of these other uh, turnout gurus, I think we got a bit higher than 1960, which is astonishing. And and the the weird thing about the turnout numbers. So as voting rights and civil rights legislation goes into place, as women enter the workforce as independent human beings, the universe of possible voters goes up, and it looks like it's being driven down. But part of that was was the effect. Um, and you had really high turnout in the '60s, right? You had these really high numbers in the '60s, and then you see dropping, 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 dropping off. Who didn't vote? What kinds of voters weren't voting in the 80s and 90s uh, who were voting in 2020? Are these the kinds of folks you're talking about? Low, low propensity, non-ideological? Yeah, it's a really good question. Actually, there's a, you know, there's a paradox to the, this decline in turnout that you see from 1960 all the way really through 1996. Um, you had not only, as you mentioned, Chris, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, uh, motor voter laws. Um, had gone into effect, and higher levels of education, um, which we know correlates very highly with turnout. And yet turnout went down. Um, 
we think a lot of it was because the parties turned their attention from uh, the the kind of blocking and tackling that they had done so effectively for many you know generations in American politics. You know, person to person contacting. They moved more towards being becoming service organizations, raising money, putting on television advertisements. That that became kind of their mo. And until they returned in the late 90s, 98 in particular, the Democrats began to do this. And then the Bush campaign picked up on it in a big way in 2000, 2004. That, that was when turnout began to tick back up. So, so parties kind of abdicated the sort of things that they used to do to the detriment of turnout. And who was most affected? Well, mostly peripheral voters, younger people. You know, again, there's an expansion of the electorate uh, for the 1972 election. 18 to 21 year olds get a chance to vote. They voted extremely low levels. And they continue to vote at, at really low levels. Union turnout drops during this period of time. Um, not, you know, not through the, through the floor, but reliable union voters kind of start looking more like everybody else. Their turnout rates have been very high. They kind of came down to the average over this period of time. And then you get the entrance of um, not just uh, Latino, but also Asian uh, immigrants coming from Southeast Asia. They voted very, very low rates, um, despite the fact they're, especially the Asian population, relatively high socioeconomic status. So, so you have these, these interesting changes and the entrance, younger voters, immigrants, especially second gen- generation immigrants who participate at low levels, some decline amongst traditional voters. And that's kind of the paints a, an ugly picture for turnout until the early 2000s, when the parties begin more aggressive com- uh, combination of use of big data to identify voters and then use of uh, you know, enhanced communication techniques, including, you know, text messaging, you know, digital outreach through emails and social media. And that begins to, to sort of turn things around, right? So, you, so, so you, you attribute, so if I'm getting this right, once upon a time, have you ever seen uh, The Last Hurrah with Spencer Tracy? No, I haven't. Oh, you, it's based on a fantastic book. Uh, book is wonderful written by a newspaper guy in Philadelphia. And it's about the last machine political win in the old school Philadelphia politics, right? Parades and what's the, and and you're describing uh, uh, exactly what the idea of parties were. We're going to get you to the polls, right? We could go back further. We could go to Edgar Allan Poe dropping dead after being poisoned with bad liquor that he was fed uh, by the Democratic machine in Baltimore trying, and they would, what they would do in those days would be, they would uh, find hobos, uh, winos like Edgar Allan Poe uh, and put them in different suits of clothes so that they could go vote in multiple locations in one day. So that's illegal, but reflective of the emphasis on turnout that the parties placed prior to the television age. So your estimation is we get to the television age and the focus goes to, we need to raise money to purchase advertisements to convince people to go vote rather than we're going to go get people to vote. Yes. I think that's a, you know, I I tell my students this sort of, this is an observation of mine that I lay on them every semester. I I think the two most important changes in American politics until very recently um, are the party's forfeiture of control of the nomination process, and then the rise of television. And these things kind of go hand in glove, right? You, you basically take a system that was dominated by political parties who could uh, withhold or grant nominations to preferred candidates and keep people in line. Uh, when they open it up to primaries and allow voters to sort of determine these things, 
Um, and then you also bring up television where candidates have an opportunity to establish a personalized vote. You completely and utterly transform American politics. And it's, when you it's, say establish a personalized vote, what do you mean? Yeah, in the old days, you know, if Chris Steyerwald is running as a, a Republican candidate in uh, Orange County, say, um, he's... Law and order. I'm ru- I, I, if I'm running in Orange County, I'm running on law and order. I'm in. Okay. That's right. You get the nomination by appealing to party elders, by making sure you're held in favor. They uh, line up fundraisers for you. They, uh, they do the block walking. They do the, the mail programs, et cetera. Um, that's sort of, you know, the old school. Uh, but the party's moved away from that. And, the party- and we, I would just point out for, for listeners, in 1968, uh, Hubert Humphrey won the Democratic nomination, and he never won a primary. He won zero primaries. There were primaries that were held in 68. The primary system was coming in uh, and expanding, but primaries were still sort of second-tier, goofy affairs. Conventions were the thing, and party elders were the thing. So when we talk about an individualized vote, what Put that in the context of that. What happens then is, you know, candidates don't win the nomination by uh, going to the state convention and, uh, you know, glad handing people and fetting party elders. They win the nomination by going out and winning a primary. And winning a primary means distinguishing, you know, between uh, Chris Starwalt and Darren Shaw running in Orange County for the Republican nomination. Chris Starwalt uh, picks a set of issues, kind of puts, develops a brand markets himself via television in order to win the primary. And then, you know, it's not surprising then when Chris primary, Chris Starwell wins the primary that he turns to the general election, the part Republican party says, okay, Chris, we're ready to take over for you right now. And Chris says, I don't think so. I've got my own people. I've got my own brand. You know, I've, I've developed, I'm running on law and order. I'm running on, uh, you know, immigration reform. I'm, I'm doing these things and thank you very much. I don't really need your help. I've got my own donors. I've got my own campaign team. And that that's, that sort of stylized story is more common than not. And, and your point about 1968 is absolutely spot on. That's the point, right? Right after that, this thing, and I, I, I think, you know, television really begins to be a dominant form of political communication kind of around that time, maybe a little earlier, but um, so these two things, you know, I need to develop a personal vote apart from the party that is as, as you know, a, a brand within a district or within a state. Television is the way to do that. And so parties kind of realize after the fact, after the horse is out of the barn, that in order to be relevant in American politics, they have to supplement that. They have to, you know, provide resources so that their successful candidates can kind of keep playing that game. Um, and that, that's, that's the story for politics in the 70s, 80s, and 90s in a lot of ways. And um, parties, however, I think decided in, in the late 90s that they were tired of being one of a number of service vendors yeah. to the candidates. You know, and decided that, well, what, what can we do that, uh, you know, PACs or, you know, political interest groups can't do? And they decided to go back, especially the Democrats. As I said, 98 was, was a really critical election in that regard. They decided to go back and doing door-to-door and, and more personalized outreach. And that, that's a big part of the story of the last 20 years, I think. So the story, I've, the story I've been telling for years is about how weak political parties and for, for Jonah fans... You're going to get a good, you're going to get a remnant bingo card check here. So we talk about weak parties and strong partisanship. Um, but that 
add that that the precarious situation for the parties that you have described is compounded by the McCain-Feingold Campaign Finance Reform Act, which, as Mitch McConnell famously said, you haven't taken the money out of politics, you've taken the money out of parties. So you weaken the parties there, the soft money that had been the tool for party elders to use to enforce things inside the parties, right? So you'd say, no, we don't want this guy and I'll cut you off if you endorse him. So if we to use a, to use a situation, when Jeff Sessions became the first senator to endorse Donald Trump uh, in 2016, a previous, at a previous point in the Republican Party, someone would have said to Jeff Sessions or someone around Jeff Sessions, he needs to stop it because if he doesn't, we're going to cut him off and he'll never get another nickel from us. And they could credibly make the threat stick. And then when you get Citizens United after that, which empowers the PACs that you're talking about, they come in and then they fill the gap left by that. And they're accountable to their donors, yes, but only for a cycle, right? They can be pop-ups and they can go away. So they're not accountable. They're not investing in any kind of future. They're trying to win one election. Yep. It's, I, I, that storyline is absolutely on target. I mean, I had a, a, an undergraduate student about 10 years who wrote a really great senior honors thesis called Ants in the Kitchen. And his argument was that uh, political money is like sugar um, in your kitchen, that you can try to close gaps and, and prevent you know, the ants from getting in, but the ants are going to find a way. And, and the analogy with campaign finance is, is that you know, first the FECA and then McCain-Feingold tried to, to, to block access points and all it did was shift the focus, and, and your, your story is exactly right. It shifted focus away from accountable institutions, candidates and parties, and it shifted it towards unaccountable institutions, which are these interest groups and anonymous donors. Right, um, the USA Freedom Number 1 Best America PAC LLC uh, that, that, is gone, that, that vanishes before it can file its first uh, campaign finance report. So t- tell us about your new book that I confess that I have not read, but you haven't sent it to me. So we're even on that point. Uh, so so uh, it's called The Appearance of Corruption, right? That's right. That's right. So uh, I have a colleague, Brian Roberts, University of Texas. And um, we've been, uh, again, maybe we should just retitle ourselves Mythbusters, I guess. But um, there's a, uh, the Supreme Court in its very famous Buckley versus Vallejo decision, we're talking about campaign finance reform, um, allowed federal regulation of of campaign finance in the 1970s, uh, which was very controversial at the time. The Federal Election Campaign Act was the first really massive uh, attempt to regulate um, political speech in the form of campaign finance regulation. And it wasn't clear it was constitutional. In the Buckley decision, the court ruled that uh, the state government had, in fact, a compelling interest in regulating campaign finance, um, and that uh, it was narrowly tailored, the FEC was narrowly tailored, therefore it passed constitutional muster, uh, because it was going to limit, not not corruption, not quid pro quo corruption, but the mere appearance of corruption. That was sufficient grounds for the regulation. So so for those of your listeners out there wondering, how is it that we allow federal regulation of political speech? I mean, why, why is that even possible? That Buckley decision is, is the reason. What Roberts and I noticed um, was that the Supreme Court in issuing this decision actually offered a, a model of voting um, that had never been formally tested. It, and the, the model very quickly kind of runs along the following way. It says, well, uh, people think the system is corrupt. They, they, they perceive corruption out there. 
they're less trusting of government and they're less likely to participate and therefore the quality of democracy erodes. And so what we need- is that really what Buckley v. I, I, I yes. have, I, so, and for people who uh, are into weird stuff, you wouldn't be listening if you weren't. Uh, the, so this is a decision when William F. Buckley's brother, is this right? Do I have this right? That his bro, this was from his brother's mayoral run or Senate run? I think it was Senate. So it was, had to it was be a Senate federal. run because it was federal office. So Buckley ran for mayor of New York. He, Jonah would just be, he, if, if he ever hears this, he'll be, he'll just be spinning across the sky that for my lack of William F. Buckley knowledge. Though I have been lately watching old firing line episodes for some reason, because YouTube was like, maybe you'd like to watch uh, William F. Buckley interview Thomas Sowell. And I'm like, actually I would. Okay. Um, but if, that the, this was the case in which, well, tell us what the case said. Okay. So in the case, um, at, at, you know, at play was again, does the federal government have the right, um, to, uh, regulate what is the most protective of all speeches, the most fundamental of all freedoms, freedom of not just speech, but political speech. And so, uh, you know, and, and the, the case was actually involved a, a Senate race in which, uh, some, uh, FEC regulations, FEC regulations, uh, the FEC was passed in 71, but then significantly amended in 74. So we're really talking about the 74 amendments. And they regulated how much a candidate could uh, could spend on his or her behalf, the contribution level um, that, that is regulated how much, you know, you and I as individual citizens could contribute. So this is uh, when the $2,200, and, and the federal government splits it up. I've never made a political contribution, uh, unlike Arnon Michigan. Uh, the, uh, the, the federal government regulated that you could give $2,200, you could give in the primary, you could give in the general, you could give this way, you could give that way. Prior to that, there was no such restriction? It was, un- it was unclear. And that's why, it, you know, it was, it was very interesting. So it was $1,000, was the FBCA said, $1,000 per candidate per campaign. So you could give 1000 in the in the uh, primary, 1000 in the general. Um, so that was the regulation. That stuck for years and years until Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. And, and that was what, it, what was at issue. There was a challenge in the Buckley case of both the individual level, the contribution limit, and then the expenditure limit. And what the court did in Buckley, which is really odd, is it said, okay, uh, the federal government has no right to regulate how much you spend on behalf of your candidacy. So as a candidate, you can spend as much as you want. So it blew out the expenditure restrictions, but it upheld the contribution limits. So it's speech if you spend it, but yes. it's not speech if I give it to you to spend, was right. basically the rule. And, and if you read between the lines, and maybe not even so much between the lines, the idea was that, well, if, if, if uh, Sean Starwell want to give money to a candidate, um, that cap is okay because there are other ways for them to express themselves politically besides the contribution. Um, so we could, you know, put independent expenditures out there or, uh, you know, agent packs or things like that. It's it's an odd ruling. My students have never quite found you know found it particularly compelling. But but it's, al- it's almost like they were doing algebra instead of doing uh, the courts, right? So that, that we this is the this is the kind of decision people talk about as as legislating from the bench. So yes. what? So because I know, and you were very kind to be joining us. You're interrupting your vacation, and your poor wife, who is finally going to have a vacation, is waiting for us to finish, and we will be expeditious. Um, but so take us from the premise of your book and the appearance of corruption is take us from there to what you found. 
Well, I think uh, what we do is we say, okay, so the court says, posits this model. The model is that uh, um, campaign finance regulation can limit perceived corruption and that limited perceived corruption will increase trust in government and increased trust in government will lead to higher turnout. And we take each of these little, you know, kind of elements of the model and test it. And we find, in fact, that um, campaign finance regulation doesn't seem to have much impact at all on perceived corruption. Uh, the other linkages are mostly correct. If, if perception, perceived corruption is reduced, it does seem to increase trust in government, and trust in government does seem to be linked with, um, with higher turnout. However, uh, one other thing, and we sort of wrote ourselves into a corner on this, and I, I, I hope people buy the book and then, and then <laughs> solve, solve your problem. Experience <laughs> my as you go to the last chapter, but uh, Professor Roberts and I had also established that uh, people who think the system is corrupt are not less likely to turn out. They are, in fact, more likely to turn out and vote. So it's, it's not only oh. the campaign. Yeah, so there's two linkages that are problematic in the court's reasoning. And I say we wrote ourselves into a corner because we certainly didn't want to spend the last chapter saying, so, folks, the uh, upshot here is that we need more corruption if we really want higher turnout. Um, well, but uh, isn't it reasonable, though, to think that let's go back to the machine politics days, right? If I believe that things are corrupt in my favor, then I am maybe inclined to vote. Um, if I believe that things are corrupt against my interest, then maybe I'm inclined to vote too. I've wondered in 2020, was the, was the high Republican turnout, high Republican engagement because they believed that they were fighting against this democratic corruption, right? Did they, did that juice turn out or suppress turnout? Do we know? Yes. It's, you know, if I could ring a bell for you right now, I would. The, the, you know, the notion that the system was corrupt, the whole drain the swamp mentality, people who, who identified draining the swamp as their, as their number one uh, priority were, and this is in pre-election polling, were absolutely off the charts in terms of their, in terms of their expressed enthusiasm and their self-professed likelihood of voting. Uh, we're still going through the files validating whether or not these people voted or not, but they certainly sounded like they were going to vote. They expressed enormous interest and engagement and, you know, so, and, and it's, this coincides with the political science literature on anger, that, that people who are angry, you know, if, if, it's, if it's a contest between hope and fear or, or hope and anger, you know, I hate to say it from a normative point of view, but bet on anger every time. Anger is an unbelievable motivator for turnout. Um, so to the extent that people agree about the swamp, they're voting. And if you want them to be angry, they have to be a little afraid that it will have consequences for them. So that's why fear and anger are, are each other's stablemates uh, in political life. And everybody knows it. Everybody knows this to be true, though we have forgotten it. It is much harder to win being decent and optimistic. The remarkable thing about Ronald Reagan's optimism, the remarkable thing uh, about when George Bush was talking about his message in 2000, winning an election with basically an optimistic message uh, is a lot harder than terrifying people uh, and then telling them that they should, who they should be angry at and trying to channel that energy. Yeah. I mean, you know, negative information is, is believe it or not, in today's world, it is more, it is rarer than positive information. It is more memorable than positive information. Um, you know, I tell my students, if, if you go back to your dorms today and you are not assaulted or, you know, not subject to a crime, it's not going to be on the front page of the daily newspaper, um, the daily Texan. But if something bad happens to it, it will be. 
Um, and we, we I have just, a saying in the news business, which is we don't report on all the planes that land. Uh, okay. So last thing, what's going to happen. So the, our takeaways are turnout does not have a partisan orientation. Higher turnout does, is not linked to democratic or Republican success. It's just more turnout because low affinity voters aren't ideological. That's why they're low affinity voters. If they were ideological, they'd be high affinity voters. Uh, or uh, uh, So that's number one. Number two is when courts engage in uh, legislation uh, designed to reduce the appearance of corruption, uh, they will, they will in, with the goal of encouraging people to vote more, it actually will, may work the opposite direction and may suppress turnout or depress turnout. Yeah, I'll give my colleague Brian Roberts credit for the line. I, I think one of the opening lines of the book is maybe the opening line is, you know, what happens when the Supreme Court gets it wrong? And, and you know, from a, from a behavioral modeling point of view, and that's, that's kind of one of the motivating features of the book. Oh, for the lovely days back when we all thought that we were behavioral economists and knew that everybody, what rational actions all human beings would take. Okay, very last thing. What will turnout be compared to previous years in the 2022 midterms? Are we going to see, are people going to stay engaged? Are we going to have super high turnout? Or will people say, I went and voted, leave me alone? It's a great question. So I was just looking at this for a, for another talk, and the average drop-off from presidential to midterm election turnout is between 12 and 14 points. Right. In this election, you know, so this last election, let's, let's just take 65. I think I said 66. But let's take 65 as our, uh, as our baseline presidential, um, presidential turnout. Well, that would indicate, okay, we're only going to drop to, um, you know, maybe, maybe 51 to 53 percentage points for a midterm breaking 50% turnout, which we did in 2018, that's a monster turnout. Yeah. Um, I'm dubious about that. I, I, I'm, I don't think systematically, you know, you can count on turnout because we're just so great at mobilizing voters. As you alluded to, Chris, I think the psychology has to matter. I don't know that the Democrats are going to be all that jazzed up. I'm not sure Republicans are going to be all that jazzed up either. So, so kind of apropos of this notion, if you see a 14-point dropout in turnout, I think a lot of people naturally assume, well, the Republicans are going to do great then, right? Um, I don't know that I think that's the case. I, I, you know, I, I think I don't see a prevailing political wind right now. Um, I'm not feeling it. Mm -mm. But, uh, but I think you could see just an average drop-off, and it, 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 there's nothing right now to believe that's going to systematically favor one side or the other. Um, you know, there's a surge and decline argument, as you well know, that says, you know, the out party does well in these things. I think that's probably going to happen. But but I don't see it as being some sort of, you know, 2010, 2014 type. Yeah, that, drop -off. that but that 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 would that don't underestimate the Republicans chances to squander good opportunities. And this would be and, and this certainly I'm not saying it will be, but it certainly could be the first time since 2002 that the in party didn't lose substantial ground in the in the midterms. Yeah, I think I saw a sheet that had uh, there were only 16 districts, House districts that had a split between the presidential and the congressional vote. Uh, nine uh, Republican, nine went um, Democrat, House Republican president and seven went uh, the opposite. Yeah. So, 
there's just not much low hanging fruit out there, right? Well, I think our, I think our takeaways today are other than you are a good and obliging friend who is interrupting his vacation is that no one should vote. And I think that's really your message today is that PJ work called the book. Don't vote. It only encourages the bastards. And I think that's uh, I, I, th- I think that's what you've reinforced here today. Thanks for ruining everyone's civic vibe. Yeah. Thank you, America. <laughs> Dar- Darren Shaw, we thank you very sincerely, very earnestly. Uh, you are my friend and I really admire the work that you do because you really are a myth buster. So thanks a bunch. Chris, it's a two-way street. Thank you very much. Well, Darren has left his lovely rental car. Looked like, I think, maybe a Malibu. Not sure. Looked comfortable. Uh, and is on with his vacation. And uh, I'm not going to tarry with you too much, but I would say that if you were a dispatch subscriber, which you should be, uh, Jonah always says, if you can afford it, I say, even if your children go without food, go subscribe to the dispatch. Um, that with the upcoming elections in Virginia and New Jersey. So that's a great theoretical discussion that uh, Darren and I just had. And I would recommend highly his books, uh, certainly the first book, uh, and I know the second one will be just as good, but the first book is The Turnout Myth, easily accessible for non-data geeks to really understand how this works. There are charts. Um, But we will get to see later this year in Virginia and New Jersey in real terms in these elections, which party is fired up, ready to go, uh, and how persuadable voters are going. That's why we focus on special elections. That's why we focus on these off-off-year elections, because they're like core samples that you drill in the Arctic ice to pull out and say, okay, what's really going on underneath here? Polling is limited in terms of assessing voter propensity who is a likely voter, you can do an expensive poll that gets you pretty good information about who a likely voter is, but that's going to change. And the characteristics, the demographic characteristics of likely voters are going to change election to election. We will be looking this November at New Jersey uh, and Virginia to see in the laboratory of real life, who's really turning out and who's, who really isn't. The politicians always say, especially when they're losing, the only poll that counts is the one on election day. And I say, har har, but It's true that if you really want to know about turnout and likelihood and who's there and who isn't, that's the place to be. Uh, Thank you for indulging me today and having me as your guest host. Uh, Jonah will be back later this week, full of excellence, uh, hopefully rested, tanned, feeling enthusiastic. He can't have a worse trip than he did to Austin, so that will be good. Uh, And I would tell you that I will see you next time, but it won't be me. And I already know it's a podcast. Have a great day. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.